this time I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 16. Begin reading at verse 9. If you're using a pew Bible, that can be found on page 1015. As you're turning there, and before I read, I'm going to make a longer introduction to the reading of this text of Scripture. And the reason being, you may recall that on Easter Sunday morning, I read verses 1 to 8, and I had told you that verses 9 to 20 were somewhat of a, a difficult section of Scripture, because if you note, between verse 8 and verse 9, we have what's in brackets in our edition of the Bible that says this, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. What in the world is going on here? <laughs> and so I felt that I can't just let this go, because as the people of God, we need to be assured and reminded of the reliability of Scripture, of God's Word, God's truth. And so it's important. It's important that I make these, these comments regarding why we're going to read this passage of Scripture and why I'm going to preach on it. During that same time, during Easter Sunday, a little boy came up to me, not even in junior high, downstairs in the fellowship hall, and said, hey, pastor, why is it under the Bible it says this is not included in a manuscript? <laughs> a little boy asked me that question. That's a good question, son. <laughs> If little children are asking the question, shouldn't we adults ask that question? We're talking about God's word here. You see, in our hands, we hold a copy of God's word. Even the original manuscripts of the New Testament, books and gospel letters, are copies. Because we don't have the original manuscripts. We have copies of the original Greek, thousands of fragmented copies, but we have many full copies of the New Testament itself in Greek. Can we still have God's Word if we don't have the original manuscripts? There's a man by the name of Dr. Roger Nickel. He was a theologian and pastor and the 19th century, and he was a huge advocate and proponent of the reliability of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, the infallibility of Scripture, infallibility meaning no mistakes to God's Word, in God's Word. And he says this in terms of what we're talking about here. He says, if the building that houses the National Institute of Standards and Technology in Washington, D.C., were to burn down, and the standard yardstick, the official measurement of a yard, were to be destroyed, would our understanding of the yard as a measurement of distance be lost? Think about that. The answer, he says, is no, for we would be able to use the myriad of copies of the official yardstick that we have to reconstruct the official yard to with a tiny fraction of an inch of accuracy. The yardstick that you buy at Ace Hardware is the yardstick 
same measurement as you would see at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. So we have copies of Greek manuscripts, but they are still, they remain God's Word. God's Word. In your Bible, verses 9 to 20 are in brackets and says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include uh, 16, 9 to 20. There are a couple views here. Two most important that I want to talk about, and they're in your notes there. There are four views concerning the long ending or the short ending. Does Mark's gospel end at verse 8, or does Mark's gospel end at verse 20? Is there a short ending or a long ending? Because of the abrupt ending at verse 8, it is believed that scribes who wrote the copies of divine scripture inserted the long ending to verses 9 to 20. Because verse 8 is an abrupt ending to the gospel. But how do we know which one is right? How do we know which one is right? Well, you look at the external and internal evidence. I have those in my notes. The external and internal evidence. The external evidence is the evidence outside of the, the Bible itself. Did the early, what did the early church fathers believe? Did they reference verses 9 to 20? Some did. Some seemed to have known its existence. Some didn't. Also, we look at the manuscripts that are out there. 95% of the manuscripts of the New Testament, 95% have the long ending. It ends in, at verse 20. However, the two manuscripts of earliest date that full copies of the New Testament dating back to the 4th century do not have verses 9 to 20. So overall, the external evidence is inconclusive. But then you look at the internal evidence. The internal evidence looks at Mark's gospel itself and the Bible as a whole. You see, when, you, when we read Mark, if you read it in the Greek language, and then you get to verse 9 and 20, there is a difference in grammar. There's a difference in sentence structure. If uh, C.S. Lewis were to take J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and insert an ending to it, it would be noticeably different. But he would keep with uh, the thought of J.R. Tolkien. And so, in the early, the evidence Internal evidence in the, in the uh, gospel of Mark itself shows that the language and grammar is not as consistent with verses 9 through 20. But at a close look at this internal evidence, we see themes. We see themes that are very similar. Yeah, the grammar may be different, the sentence structure may be different, but the theme is very similar. In fact, when we read it, which we will do right now, you'll notice it. So let's draw our attention to the text, verses 9 to 20. Now when he rose, that is when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them 
as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Thus far the reading of the word of God. Congregation of Christ, did you hear the themes in there? The dullness of the disciples' hearts. Christ's appearance to Mary. You see the theme of Scripture, of the other Gospels. How he appeared to Mary Magdalene, how he appeared to the two disciples. Luke 24, the two on the road to Emmaus. Or how he appeared to the disciples. Throughout verses 9 to 20, there is no contradiction, no contradiction between what is taught here and the rest of Holy Scripture. In fact, the themes within, the internal evidence, as I talked about, is even in verses 9 to 20, particularly the dullness of the disciples' heart. I preach this as the Word of God. I preach it as the Word of God. Yes, we have this difficulty, this challenge, what we call textual criticism. What is God's Word? How do we know that what is in the written text is truly inspired of God? I think the Belgian Confession helps us. Article 5 speaks of the authority of Scripture, where it says, we receive all these books and these only as holy and canonical for the regulating, founding, and establishing of our faith. And we believe without a doubt all things contained in them. Now listen carefully what it says. And we believe without a doubt all things contained in them, not so much because the church receives and approves them as such, but above all because the Holy Spirit testifies in our hearts that they are from God and also because they prove themselves to be from God. For even the blind themselves are able to see that the things predicted in them do happen. The Holy Spirit testifies in our hearts that this is the true teaching of God, consistent with God's word. Reliable. You can trust it. It is not contrary to the Bible, to the rest of Scripture. 
we even see the theme of the Great Commission, Matthew 28 here. And so as I work through this passage of Scripture, beginning at verse 9, we're going to look here at the Lord's appearance to his disciples. The risen Lord appears to his disciples. That's how it's concluded. First of all, the eyewitnesses testify of the Lord's resurrection from the dead. Did you notice at verse 9, verse 12, and verse 14, Jesus appeared, Jesus appeared, Jesus appeared. Jesus appears to his disciple Mary, Jesus appears to his disciples, the two on the road to Damascus, and Jesus appears to the eleven. We see that clearly. And what happened when he appeared to them? What happened when he appeared to them? These witnesses, these eyewitnesses of the resurrected, incorruptible Christ, they give testimony of him. We have seen the Lord. They are so moved in their hearts that Jesus was dead, and behold, he is alive forevermore, and they give testimony. Mary, in, in verse 10, she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. The eleven hear the good news from Mary. Surely their mourning and sadness will be turned to joy. Nope. Nope, the scriptures were fulfilled in Christ, the crucified and risen one. And yet it hasn't taken root in their hearts. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus saw the risen Lord, the incorruptible Lord. And in Luke 24, it says when, when Jesus, they didn't recognize him at first, but when Jesus broke bread with them, their eyes were enlightened. And they said, this is the Lord. And what did they do? They go to give testimony to the eleven. It is the risen Lord that moves these eyewitnesses to testify of the Christ, the risen Christ. Is eyewitness testimony important and necessary? Was it important and necessary for the risen Christ to appear before his disciples? Yes. You see, Jesus foretold his death and resurrection. It is easy to foretell one's death because we're all going to die. But to foretell one's resurrection from the dead, well, we need concrete evidence of that. We need concrete evidence that indeed the scriptures are true concerning the resurrection of Christ. He was crucified, and on the third day, will he rise from the dead? Will he appear to his disciples to prove that he is risen? You see, God fulfills his own word. He fulfills his own word. There are laws concerning witnesses. And God, the risen Christ, gives those who are living, his disciples, eyewitness testimony that he is alive so that they can go forth and be a witness to the risen Christ. 
Proverbs 14.25 says, A truthful witness saves lives, but one who breathes out lies is deceitful. A truthful witness saves lives. Here they go, testifying to the truth of Christ crucified and risen. The one who is the way, the truth, and the life is risen. The one who says, I am the resurrection and the life is risen. And so he proves himself alive, convincingly proves himself alive to his disciples and even his disciples, the 11. Now ask, ask a question, ask yourself this question, do you need an eyewitness testimony of Christ's resurrection today? Do you need to say, I need to see Jesus is raised from the dead to believe? I remember hearing the gospel, evangelizing someone in the city of Chicago when I was at Moody. And he said, I will not believe unless I see Jesus right here by my side. I said, no, you won't. And he looked at me and said, you're probably right. Because that's man's nature, to deny things that are true. We like the lie. We like to promote the lie. Let God be true and every man a liar. Is it imperative and necessary for you to have eyewitness evidence? Maybe you're here sitting a, a skeptic, a doubter. I need to see him in order to believe. The question is, no, you don't need eyewitness testimony in the sense that you need somebody who saw the risen Christ or you yourself seeing the risen Christ. Because we have the testimony of the apostles and prophets written in God's divine word. We have the word of the gospel inscripturated that is written down. That's why they call it holy writ or inscripturation. It's written down for the church as the apostles and prophets were led by the Spirit, as Peter says, led by the Spirit like a boat. The, the, the literal Greek there has the idea of a boat that has a rudder and the wind blows the winds of that boat, and the rudder moves it in a direction. The Holy Spirit moved them in a direction to write down the divine word of God for us. This is the testimony that God gives us, and we are called to believe it. Do you believe God's word and that it is true? Do you believe that it is a sufficient word for you concerning life? Salvation, forgiveness of sins, eternal life? Do you believe that it's authoritative? That God is the ultimate authority and he speaks authoritatively in his word? You see, God himself is his own witness. That's why they call it the self-authenticating word of God. When I share the gospel with people, I do not try to stand in God's place and prove that his word is true. No, I speak as if it is the word of God and it is true. Because it is self-authenticating. God proves himself to be true. Because at the end of the day, it ultimately takes faith. 
to believe it's true. It's true regardless if you have faith or not, but it takes faith because of our hardness of heart to believe that it is God's word and it is true and it's everything we need to know God, to know Jesus and to love him and follow him. Scripture proves that it is true. What does the Apostle Paul say in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 16? All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. God's Word proves to be true because it's inspired by the Spirit of God. We have the testimony of Scripture, and we're going to get to why eyewitness testimony was necessary for the disciples. And so the eyewitness testimonies testify to the risen Lord. Secondly, the 11 apostles doubt and disbelieve the testimony of the eyewitnesses. You notice how many times we've read that. Verse 11, but when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. And verse 13, And they went back, the two disciples went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. And what what happens? Jesus appears to the eleven, and he doesn't appear before them with words of commendation, but he rebukes them. Because they did not believe the word that was spoken to them concerning his resurrection. Here they are spiritually dull in heart certainly consistent with the rest of the gospel. They didn't believe his word or the scriptures or the eyewitnesses. They were dull in heart, spiritually dull, hardened in heart, as Jesus says. They doubt and disbelieve. Therefore, they doubted and disbelieved God's word. When That's what we do. When we doubt, friends, when we doubt God's promises, we are essentially doubting what he says to be true. You think about the forgiveness of sins. If I come before God truly repented and sorry for my sins, but I then doubt whether he forgives me or not in Christ, I am essentially doubting what God's word says to be true concerning me. I'm disbelieving. To that we say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. He rebukes them, but he doesn't reject them, does he? Isn't that astounding, the compassion of Jesus? When you and I doubt him and his promises, does he throw you to the curb? Does he say, I'm done with you? Forget about you. You're done. It's over. Remember last Sunday evening? When we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. That is, he cannot deny his very character, his nature. You see, the 11 are not so much different than we are. They had doubts. They had disbeliefs. But his appearance, his appearance removes all doubts. His appearance removes unbelief. Because it's important that the risen Christ appears to his 11 disciples because they will go forth and be his witnesses to the nations. Let all the nations praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Praise you. Let the nations be glad. 
It is through the apostles, the 11 apostles, that Jesus would spread his word. They would be his witnesses. They would then give testimony of Christ crucified and risen. Notice what Peter says in, in Acts chapter 1. You remember in Acts chapter 1, they were going to replace Judas so that there would be a 12th apostle. And Matthias, the lot falls on Matthias to be the 12th apostle. But Peter says, the text says, there. Are, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. This was the requirement to be the 12th apostle. This person had to come in and out with them and the Lord Jesus teaching in his earthly ministry. He had to have accompanied them in the earthly ministry beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Because they had to be eyewitnesses, 12 eyewitnesses. The symbolism of 12 is important in Scripture. A, 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 a number of wholeness, of completion. We have a complete witness in the 12 apostles who will go forth into the nations and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus first has to remove their doubts, remove their unbelief, so that they are, they are certain that Jesus is raised from the dead. And we are the beneficiaries. Think about this. We are the beneficiaries of this testimony. So that when they preached to Galatia, to the Corinthians, to the Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians, they're preaching to us. Because that word's been preserved to us in the Bible. The 11 apostles doubt and disbelieve the testimony of the eyewitnesses, but Jesus removes their doubt and unbelief, appears to them, appears to Thomas. Remember Thomas who doubted? We're all doubters. Come on, let's be real. He removes their doubt and disbelief, and then he commissions them. He commissions them. Here we have something similar to Matthew chapter 28. Go into all the world, verse 15, and he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, and whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. Jesus gives them the command and commission to preach Christ, preach the gospel. Not only will you preach the gospel, but signs will accompany these 12 apostles. And those signs are enumerated there in the text for us. And we see this throughout the book of Acts. Because indeed, indeed, those signs accompanied them. They cast out demons. They spoke in new tongues. They picked up serpents with their hands. That is, you remember Apostle Paul on the island of Malta when he was bit by a poisonous snake and the Lord spared him. Jesus Christ even says in the Scriptures, 
concerning that. That you will trample upon snakes and scorpions, Jesus says. You, apostles, will trample on snakes and scorpions. God will do a work through the testimony of the eyewitnesses when they preach these signs, signs similar to the, to the ones that the Lord Jesus performed in his earthly ministry. The kingdom is come. The kingdom is come. And with the coming of the kingdom comes the preaching of the gospel and these signs through the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles. And now that we have Holy Scripture, we have the Word of God canonized, that is, we have this rule of faith, this ruler, there is no need for signs to accompany the preaching. Because God's Word is firm and fixed and given to the church. From Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, these 11 plus Matthias, the 12 now, A group of Jewish men are called to be ambassadors for Christ, to be ministers of reconciliation between God and man. Be reconciled to God. That is the message. Are you reconciled to God this morning? That is, are you saved by grace through faith in Jesus? And are you in a right relationship with the Father through the shed blood of Christ? Reconciliation. There was enmity between God and man. For sin alienated us from God. But through the shed blood of Christ, he brings us together. God and his people are reconciled through Christ our Lord. This is what they preach. This is what they preach. Preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. But lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now you have this verse in here. He commissions them to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all the creation. Verse 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will, not, will be condemned. So do we believe in baptismal regeneration? Does baptism save in the sense of saving us from our sins, or is it a sign of salvation? Well, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, we have a very similar saying by Luke. When he records Peter's message, Peter's preaching. Baptism is a sign and seal of salvation. When you see someone baptized, you see salvation bestowed on a person. What salvation is? The forgiveness of sins. You see a sign of forgiveness, of cleansing, spiritual cleansing. But the act itself does not save The act itself does not save, as some traditions like to argue. I mean, you can even see this. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. It doesn't say, but whoever does not believe and is baptized will be condemned. You notice that? So they're called to go into all the nations to preach the gospel, to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit teaching them to obey all that he has commanded them. This is their commission. This is their calling. That the beauty and glory of Christ will be proclaimed to all nations, every tribe, tongue, and nation, because Jesus purchased with his blood a people for himself. And people need to hear the gospel. 
They need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ from his people. Not just ministers, but you, Christian, in your respective vocation, in your respective sphere of influence. That we are all called to be salt and light, and that salt and light is the gospel in you, the light of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus commissions them to this task, but he doesn't commission them without giving them power to do what they're called to do. So lastly, Jesus works with his disciples from a position of authority. The gospel concludes with the ascension and session of Christ. That is, it concludes with Jesus ascending into heaven, and his session is him being seated at the right hand of the Father Almighty. From where he makes intercession for his people, from there he executes his power and justice and righteousness. Jesus reigns and rules over all creation, even now. Even now, according to his goodwill and purposes. And from heaven, at the Father's right hand, from a position of authority, he is working with his disciples. How is he doing that? Well, he poured out his spirit upon the church. Because that's what he promised the disciples. I am leaving you, but I'm not going to leave you without a comforter, a helper, an advocate. The second comforter who is the Holy Spirit, who is poured out upon the people on the day of Pentecost. Empowering the the disciples, empowering the Christians to be bold in the ministry. How many of you asked the Spirit of God to embolden you to be a witness for Christ? Is that part of your prayer life? If it is not, I encourage you, I exhort you to make that a part of your prayer life. Because the Spirit of God who raised Christ from the dead, the Spirit of Christ who indwelt the disciples on the day of Pentecost, is the same Spirit who converted you, who consecrates you, who sanctifies you, and who is working through you. The Spirit of Christ is working through you. Are you praying that God would bestow His blessing, His Spirit in full measure upon you? To not only live lives worthy of the calling, to honor him and love him, but to be witness to him. Because the apostles in Acts prayed for what? They prayed for boldness. You ever walk to somebody and be afraid to talk about Jesus? I admit, I have. This gentleman I was talking about earlier, I was probably shaking in my boots. It is the Spirit who gave the apostles boldness to preach the gospel to the nations. And it is the Spirit who gives us boldness to be a church. To be bold in our witness for Christ. Pray for boldness. Pray that the Spirit gives you boldness to proclaim Christ and Him crucified. Pray for your pastors. Pray for your elders that they would be bold in their callings, in their commission to preach Christ and Him crucified. You know, if the eleven doubted and disbelieved the Word of God, the Word of the witnesses, how in the world will anyone else believe in the truth of the Gospel? Well, friends, the Word of the eyewitnesses, the testimony of Christ crucified and risen from the dead is the same Word spoken to us. And it's in the Bible. It's right here. Friend, when you come to the Word of God, 
you read it in your home, in your room, wherever you read it, you are reading God's word to you. That's why it's called by some a love letter. God's love letter to his people. He loved you so much, Christian, that he spoke to you through the Bible. He loves you so much that he revealed to you his word. He loves you so much that he revealed to you the Christ of Scripture so that you would believe on him, repent, and know life eternal. And this work is a continuing work of Jesus in that position of authority at the right hand of the Father, working by his Spirit through the preaching of the gospel even right now as you're listening. And so if you're listening and you are not believing the message of Christ crucified and risen, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says that the person who does not believe is condemned already. It's not Pastor Rossi's idea or thought on the matter. It's God's. And God calls men everywhere to repent and believe in Jesus. And it's through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit that sinners become new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. But how will they hear? I'm going to conclude with Romans 10. How then will they call on him in whom they have not heard or believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. If you hear him speak to you this day, Receive his word and believe it. And know life eternal. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, as Paul writes in Romans 10, how will they hear without a preacher? How can those who do not believe in you trust in you unless someone goes out and is sent forth and commissioned to preach the gospel. So we thank you for ministers of the word. We thank you for pastors and shepherds and elders and missionaries and church planters. And yet at the same time, this is a calling for every believer. For as Philemon write, or Paul writes to Philemon, I pray that you are active in sharing your faith. And so this is true for all of us, every Christian, to share our faith in the crucified and risen Savior, to be witnesses of your word. And so we pray, Lord, that you would grant us boldness by your Spirit to be that witness, not trusting in ourselves to convert sinners, for this is your work. You do that. You convert sinners. For what is impossible with man is not impossible with God. So help us simply to be faithful to what you have called us to. We pray, O oh Lord, for 
your people, that you would encourage us with this word. Strengthen us by your spirit. Sanctify us by your grace. And help us, O Lord, to give you glory, honor, and praise. Because you are worthy. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. In his name we pray.